Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. This is the podcast produced for Strategy International, a global think tank and consulting firm that brings together great minds from all over the world that come together, collaborate, analyze, and discuss topics of global interest, such as international politics and policies, um, defense and strategy, the economy, the environment, and much, much more. Uh, I do invite you to head on over to www.strategyinternational.org so you can get informed on all the beautiful things that are happening over there. And you can have access to all the back catalog of all these wonderful productions. Um, speaking of uh, great minds, we have another great guest uh, today, uh, Paul Zemanski. He is, if not the most experienced probably one of the most experienced people when it comes to space warfare. Uh, incredible, uh, nearly 50 years experience. He's worked with um, with multiple services, including the Air Force, uh, the Army, Navy, the Marines, uh, civilian agencies like NASA. He's collaborated with uh, the, the White House National Security Council, Congress, and the Pentagon. He has hundreds of publications, and he has lectured pretty much all over the world. So happy to have you here, Paul. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. Yes, thank you for having me. I see you're coming straight from space. That's right. Yes. Your, 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 uh, your connection, your connection is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I appreciate the time that you're taking. Uh, and it's always wonderful to meet and to discuss with people that have knowledge on topics that I know absolutely nothing about. So I'll be picking your brain uh, and uh, I hope that you'll uh, you'll uh, you'll be able to cope with that. Sure, anything. Um, before we get started, you're the president of the Space Strategy Center. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What is that? Well, that's my uh, single person think tank, I guess you want, but consulting business uh, that I do worldwide consulting on, um, you know, uh, outer space warfare, uh, policy, doctrine, strategies, and, and tactics uh, in one form or another, which I, I've helped you know, allied countries around the world. As a matter of fact, some people have said, well, maybe uh, Paul here is the uh, first original uh, space mercenary like Boba Fett, since I help <laughs> allies fight space wars. Now, actually, there's been uh, about 10 space wars since the 1960s. So there's a lot that can happen up in space that, let's say, you get away with. You know, countries are just like uh, children. They'll do anything they want if they can get away with it from their parents or the United Nations or their own right. citizens and things like that. So when you're talking about tens of thousands of kilometers away, and it's difficult to directly image and and space weapons don't have big red stars painted on the side of them. And it's actually very easy to hide things in space. It mixes things up, which could be bad. You know, uh, transparency is good. Uh, but it, it could be good in another sense that it provides um, extra rungs on conflict escalation ladders where countries can show resolve and intent against each other without getting their citizens upset and forcing them to go to war and stuff like that. Right. See, this is what I find fascinating because this isn't information that you get on a regular basis, that there's this much activity happening in space other than, you know, the standard um, information that we get, the uh, space research and, and and that sort of thing. Um, and I, I, I want to pick your brain on that, obviously. Before we get to that, though, tell me a little bit how you got interested in this field. Uh, it's, it's obviously um, a field that anyone I'm, I'm i'm assuming can get interested in but it's not as though you can knock on any university's door and say i'll study this program it's not like it's an accounting or an engineering program how do you even get this knowledge and how do you get involved with this well uh when i graduated from college i uh, uh, moved to washington dc and of course there's various think tanks uh there and uh, i was always interested in thought processes let's say versus engineering you know the bigger picture and all and so i, I joined a, a think tank uh, analytic services uh, that uh, 
is much like the Rand Corporation. Actually, it was a uh, a break off from the Rand Corporation. Where I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's you know a big think tank that the Air Force had for many years, and they went out to Santa Monica, California, and the answer analytic services stayed in Washington to do the day-to-day kind of thing. And then they, when I first showed up there, they said, well, you have an option. You can either study space or study um, nuclear missile, you know, strategic kinds of things. And and space sounded, you know, I guess Star Wars are kind of cool uh, kind of thing. So I just decided on space and uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess you can say. But I've... Um, Oh, worked maybe six or seven different companies uh, since then, uh, you know, here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, Air Force Research Labs uh, out in uh, uh, Los Angeles, California, with the uh, uh, Space and Missile System Center is called there. I guess it's SSC now, same like my acronym. Uh, and uh, I've been on the board of directors of Air Force Research Lab retired general officers and admirals and me we even have one astronaut who's been up in space five times uh, so I guess I've always liked the bigger picture um, I have a personal library of uh, 3,000 books and about a thousand of those are military and so I've studied a lot of the military history and um, I've come to believe and I, I may not look at it, I'm 72 years old, but uh, I've come to believe that um, really all warfare is between human minds. I don't care if it's ancient Greek warfare or futuristic space warfare, that, uh, you, you know, you still have adversary commander have, uh, attacking the mind of another adversary commander. And he uses, you know, Soldiers, sailors, airmen, spacemen, whatever, to send messages of will and intent and things like that to make him change his mind. And I've also realized that um, you're not fighting the war, you're fighting the peace. The whole point of the war is geopolitical realignments afterwards. Mm -hmm. So space uh, has issues. Uh, One is, uh, if you really think about it, uh space is information warfare it generates information you know imagery weather navigational it transmits it so uh a lot of people and and i know the space force has just started but they're they're childish i guess in their thought processes of thinking just tactically and so forth and so they think of about oh a satellite coming up slowly to me and i'm going to start spinning out of the way or get out of whatever Versus, well, what if there's 50 satellites attacking? What is the intent? And intent's the most difficult thing to figure, you know, mm-hmm. terrestrially, but in space, even more so. You know, are they trying to do um, what's called decapitation, command and control? Are they trying to take out your imagery, uh, satellites, and, and things like that? So you have to think of that bigger picture. And quite frankly, by definition, everything you do in space is strategic. You know, the satellites cover the Earth. You attack one satellite, maybe you're creating debris. Uh, you have to understand those consequences. You can say, oh, I won the space war. Well, look at all that debris. Now all your allies hate you. You lost the peace. Mm-hmm. So you have to think of those bigger pictures. You have to think of, well, I'm not really attacking the satellite. I'm attacking the mission of the satellite. Uh, you know, imagery or something. Oh, by the way, you better attack that same mission. Uh, somebody on a camel with binoculars or uh, a drone over the battlefield because you're really trying to deny that information. So you're not attacking the satellite. You're attacking the mission. And even that's not exactly true. What you're doing is you're attacking the adversary commander's mind that is using that information from the satellite. And so you have to understand, well, I'm not just attacking the satellite. First of all, you're never going to get an order to attack the satellite. The commander-in-chief is going to say, oh, we need to deny the adversary the ability to image the battlefield with this kind of resolution or less in these latitude-longitude coordinates over the next 72 hours. 
you figure out how to do it within the rules of uh, engagement that I established earlier, laws of armed conflict, maybe international treaties, because quite frankly, you can get away with a lot in space and so you can violate international treaties, which happens mm-hmm. all the time. Um, so as I'm just getting into maybe sort of these subtleties. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, what's fascinating, and, and you know, when at first when uh you know they they sent me all your information to 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 have you on the podcast and i saw okay space war uh, warfare i thought it was mostly informational right it's okay so you have satellites you get you collect information you send that to your troops and they can organize but with you know upon reading uh, you know you're talking about uh, attacking other satellites and figuring out different strategies there's actual action happening in space between satellites yeah, there's uh, been about 10 space wars since the 1960s. Um, and you have to define what a war is. But I have a whole briefing on uh, the attack uh, that happened in 2014 uh, in space. There's a lot happening now. I mean, there's things that... What, what uh, happened What happened in 2014, Paul? Um, well, I can prove through the orbital d- dynamics mathematically that Americans attacked uh, Russian GLONASS satellites when uh, you know the Ukrainian conflict happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's necessary to deny a, an adversary military capability. It was the messaging. And it's important, you know, particularly for space, that, okay, you want to attack, uh, but you don't want people on the ground knowing about it, but it's got to be obvious to the government. Right. So um, you just look at the orbital dynamics and... Um, you know, the Russians uh, published, well, this is the date and time my GLONASS satellite started blinking out. You know, it was a cyber attack. And um, so I said, well, I'm a rocket scientist. I'm going to plug in my orbital dynamics and see where were those GLONASS satellites. That's their GPS kind of navigation satellites. Where were they on Earth in the date and times that they blinked out? And every time one a GLONASS satellite came over central Australia... Now, you know, you can look that up, Pine Gap. You know, it's well known as a, a NSA listening site. The Australians have made, I think, at least three different movies on Pine Gap. But you can see every time a GLONASS satellite came over, it stopped working. And if there were multiple GLONASS satellites in view at a certain time, they would stop working in numerical order. GLONASS <laughs> 1, 2, and 3, you know, they're checking them off a list. And, you know, I can, and it started at 6.30 a.m. exactly, local time in Australia. And, you know, I've kind of been to these sites. And, you know, they you come in at 6 a.m. and you get your coffee. And at 6.15, you start testing and simulating what you're going to do. And at 6.30, you start pushing the big red button or whatever it is on the computer screen. Right. Uh, so that's an obvious thing. Now, the thing is, is space is global. You could have had it these cyber weapons and i'm told they're um, suitcase size nowadays if you really wanted to or at least that was true 20 years ago um it could have been on a ship in the south atlantic you know where nobody would be able to figure it out i you know people on the street like me uh couldn't figure it out you could have uh multiple ships or let's say these cyber weapons on uh, rooftops of embassies around the world and you take out one uh, GLONASS satellite when it comes over France and another one that comes over Japan or whatever, and you wouldn't be able to figure out what's happening. But the trouble is, is you're sending a message. And so it's got to be obvious to the Russian government. And so you could see um, an entire takedown of the, their uh, GLONASS network. And then two weeks later, they did it again, because obviously the message wasn't transmitted or received Right. Correctly. Because, you know, the politicians like, well, I don't know, maybe it was just solar flares or something. You know, you always can think of excuses. Right. And the other uh, proof I have of this is um, you can see uh, this back and forth and who knows other things are happening. And again, I, I don't have security clearance. I can't you mm-hmm. know, say, claim this is true, though I have to admit I was at the Pentagon at the time job interviewing and in a uh, unclassified environment, 
they told me they were thinking of attacking Russian satellites. And four mm-hmm. days later, they started blinking out, you know, for what that's worth. Uh, so these things were happening. And you could see that the Russians finally got really mad and they attacked the American banking system. And again, you just read the tea leaves. You look at uh, in the American press, they said, oh, look at this. We have this cyber attack against five major banks in Manhattan. Uh, Tens of millions of bank accounts and stock accounts were downloaded. And it looks like it's coming from Russian servers. And then a few days later, you hear nothing more. It gets suppressed. But a week later, Obama is at the negotiating table with the Ukrainian conflict making a fake treaty, but, you know, trying to stop the current conflict at the moment. And so I interpret that to be mean as uh, the Americans, and I've worked with them for decades, uh, were uh, loved their technology, wanted to use the technology to show something. But the Russians counteracted by taking the war to the ground, the space war to the ground, attacking the American banking system. And a week later, you know, Obama's at the negotiating table and everything's kind of over with. So the U.S. lost that war because they mm-hmm. didn't think of the bigger strategic principle. Yeah. See, it, it, it's weak why, we, you know, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, see how there's a lot you can do without people getting all upset. I mean, you could think of like the Falklands conflict. Did Britain really care about the Falkland Islands? They're kind of, I don't know. Uh, but because everyone got really upset in Britain, they had to do something about it. It's the same with World War I. The British government didn't want, and they didn't care about a Franco-Prussian war in, on the continent. But they, uh, you know, the British citizens forced them into it. But if you can do all this stuff in space and get away with it, uh, I guess that's all right. Now, there's nothing new about that. I mean, last year there was something in the press again about an incident between a Russian and an American submarine in the Sea of Japan. And there's no CNN news guy with a camera showing it all. And that's all you hear. You don't know. It's underwater, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there was some sort of incident or show of will or whatever and you can go to like CIA headquarters um, in uh, Virginia and Washington. And there's, you know, a whole wall of all these agents who died, stars on the wall. Um, did any of those cause a war? So governments love the secrecy. And I guess I understand that, you know, they can do all these bad, mean things. And even in Ukraine, you know, what NATO's doing in Ukraine, and we're still not at nuclear war yet. You know, so I guess there's multiple uh, subtleties mm-hmm. and space provides that additional wrong on a conflict escalation later where you can show resolve and will and intent. And I think it's sort of like, um, you know, the 1960s, 70s, where you had Russian destroyers cutting off American destroyers in the Baltic or whatever, sometimes smashing into them. I don't know if it was accidental or not, you know, well, same cat and mouse games going on in space everyone around the block uh wants their own inspector satellite u.s will probably talk about six of them i've been on five different programs over the decades on them china has ones with manipulator arms Hmm. russia has one that you know france complains about them getting too close and so forth and so everyone's doing again this cat and mouse literally in space probing maybe doing damage, you know, we don't have to know about it. But to look at the Ukrainian conflict, uh, there was a cyber attack on uh, Viasat terminals, which I was told actually destroyed the terminals. I don't know how cyber you, you do that. But there was a, you know, almost funny consequences, a bunch of, I think it was like 10,000 different windmills in Europe didn't work anymore. Mm. because They didn't have satellite connectivity or something. But the... Uh, Ukrainians were using it uh, in command and control. Um, So that was a space attack, even though it's kind of on the ground. Um, And then there was multiple attacks on Elon Musk's uh, satellites. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were some laser attacks, I am told, against Maxar's imagery satellites. So these things have been going on. I'm sure there's 
these inspector satellites getting really close and looking to see well, what are the signals coming off the satellite and which way is it pointing? We know which part of the battlefield they're interested in. How many countries? In, yeah, how many countries have assets in space, uh, Paul? Oh, yeah, just many. I mean, uh, I don't have the exact count, but I'd say eighty plus or something. That uh, you know, there's uh, students in college who put together a satellite and put it up. Uh, especially nowadays where there's all kinds of commercial operators, which, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars for some small microsatellite, hundreds of thousands otherwise. Uh, I mean, it's it's a game anyone can play with. Uh, and space warfare is a game anyone, any country can play with. I mean, any country has smart kid uh, hackers <laughs> And all you're doing is hacking a satellite. And I've seen, you know, attacks, uh, techniques 35 years ago on satellites, you know, going through the, or at least uh, the command and control, uh, going through the electrical cord and, and like, oh, uh, flip a bit in uh, the commercial uh, satellite command center that says this customer hasn't paid his bill in months and they'll turn it off. You know, why, all these why, do you, yeah, why do you think it's so taboo to be talking about these things? You're, you you spoke about not, you know, have not having these incidences appear on mainstream media. Um, why do you think that is? Why are, or are, are, are news outlets reluctant to report that or do they not get the information at all? Uh, I think they get the information. The, the news outlets um, are professional liars, in my experience. And so they, they tow the, the certain political lines. And, uh, you know, I, I know they know certain things. Let me, uh, let me tell you why there's a Space Force. I was in uh, France, Lyon, France, uh, two years ago at the invitation of the uh, French Air and Space Force, you know, the equivalent of U.S. Space Force. Mm -hmm. And um, two French lieutenant colonels, and again, an unclassified environment, told me why there's U.S. Space Force. And that is, uh, in 2017, there's an American cyber satellite, space-based infrared missile warning satellite, up at Geosynchronous. And one of these, according to them, and several other people have verified it since, uh, according to the French, um, a Chinese manipulator satellite, you know, with the arms and all that, came up close to this American cyber satellite and started tearing it apart. Hmm. Now, I don't know why. I doubt the Chinese would do that for no reason. I'm sure the U.S. did something before and probably something after. You know, you never get the whole story. And the, and the reason I say that is, again, you can almost read the tea leaves. So after this incident... Uh, and you have uh, American Congress couldn't agree on passing any laws, but they readily agreed on the Space Force. It's like, oh, yeah, we really need this now. We've been under attack. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can uh, and then there was like last year, there was another kind of funny thing where a uh, a news personality was interviewing uh, a Space Force, gen Force general officer. And he says, well, General, sir, uh, theoretically, if one of these Chinese manipulator satellites came up and started attacking a missile warning satellite, what would you do? You know, and of course the, the general blah, 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 you know, that's the politically correct thing. Um, and so it's, it's obvious to me that governments around the world know about this, at least the French um, and uh, politicians in this country know about it. And the news media know about it, or why would they have act, uh, asked such a provocative question? And we're all fat, dumb, and happy sitting here on the ground not knowing about it, you know. And that's fine. You know, again, you don't want to get every upset and things. And I'm sure the president has an incident almost every day of something really bad happening, whether it's space or on the ground or naval or air and all that. And we're all happy not to know about it and not to be going to war every other week over something. Right. Uh, so these things happen. I can't prove it. Uh, I wasn't there. Who can prove it? No one can take a picture. And that's the problem, too. You uh, you wake up one morning at a satellite control center, and suddenly your satellite doesn't work. 
well, okay. Uh, did it break? Like my computer broke last month. Uh, did a micrometeorite hit it? Uh, did solar flares, you know, zap the electronics? Um, was it human caused, but accidental? Somebody got too close. Was it human caused and intentional? Well, what was the intent? You know, um, and so this is all different. So it takes months you know, I have a book on satellite failures and they you know, sort of figure this out and they assume, well, we think it was this or that. Well, in my simulations, a real space war um, is over with in 24 to 48 hours. So before you've known what's happened, suddenly it's over with. And you almost can get to the pointer if we're not there now. Would the United States go to war if it didn't have space? Would it, let's say, in the Western Pacific where... Uh, or aircraft carriers out there, but they can't communicate back to the United States. Uh, they don't have imagery to see what targets to take out. They don't have signals and intelligence satellites to see where the radars uh, broadcasting so we can avoid it. And, you know, uh, GPS for accuracy. At any rate, you almost get to the point of maybe you fight any war in space before you do anything on the ground, you know, just to take out the adversary's eyes and ears or whatever. So you almost get to the you know one of those 1960s Star Trek TV series things of you fight the war in space, whoever loses, loses and doesn't even start the war on the ground. And you can look at um, there's really key choke points in space that let's say you want to attack somebody's satellites. You'd have to build up your space weapons at those key choke points. And um, it takes days and weeks to maneuver and get them there. And if let's say the United States noticed oh look at these satellites is suspicious they're building up at these choke points i think they want to attack us they can either secretly go attack the attackers first or just go to the united nations and say hey look at this it looks like they want to attack us in space they're building up at these choke points the only reason they attack us in space is because they want to attack on the ground they want to take out us out first so maybe you can prevent a war by frustrating these attacks, or okay, you got a war in space, and I've got a briefing 94 ways to attack satellites without creating debris. So mm -hmm. maybe you lost billions of dollars of space gear, but you haven't been bombing Ukrainian cities and, and killing a half million people and stuff right. like that. So uh, uh, you can be not... Machiavellian and say, oh, maybe that's better, guys. Yeah. L let me ask you a question. It may come out as naive because I don't even know what the reality is, but are we close or have we even? Uh, uh, done this um, to weaponize these satellites? Oh, I've been on 12 space weapons programs over the last 50 years. I mean, uh, just uh, there's was it a uh, program 417 or something? It was a nuclear uh, anti-satellite at Johnston Island. I have a piece of the computer from that. Uh, I was on the F-15 anti-satellite program at the Pentagon at the time. Uh, was a missile launched from uh, on well, F-15, uh, and uh, we certainly, uh, go check out, surprisingly, uh, let's, let me see if I can phrase it, the um, electromagnetic warfare squadrons that the Space Force has, that they announced a year or two ago, and, you know, they say it's for offensive counter space, okay, there's your jammer cyber, I mean, they're admitting it, you know, go look around the world where they're all at uh you've got uh, india the shanti or something like that launched direct ascent asat uh take out one of their satellites hmm. the russians have done that in the 60s i've seen pictures uh, of you know what their uh an explosive device like uh, puts out you know shotgun pellets or something like that they redid it again before the start of the Ukrainian conflict two years ago, I took out one of their defunct uh, weather satellites, which to me was implying they would take out a National Reconnaissance Office satellites, the same kind of orbits. And it also indicated to me that this is before they actually attacked, that if they are willing to create debris that might risk the International Space Station where they add cosmonauts on, Mm -hmm. in which they are putting in a whole new, I don't know, $100 million module a few months later, 
that told me they really were serious about Ukraine and ready to go in. Right. But all of this, again, it was is almost uh, di- diplomacy. Uh, you know, the Russians are still mad over the attacks in 2014. So before they attacked in Ukraine again, uh, they were uh, threatening the United States, say, don't do that again. Look what we can do. And I think a week or two later, they threatened our GPS satellites verbally, you know, that we can attack them. And so it's all of this, I don't know if you call it diplomacy or, you know, to me, space warfare isn't necessarily blowing up a satellite. You could be jamming it. You could be taking out the ground uh, terminals. Uh, you can doing uh, diplomacy and have treaties that might, you know, delay an adversary's space weapon system. Um, you can have economic uh, sanctions so they don't get key technologies. This is all, in some sense, the different subtleties of space warfare. Well, with the advancement in technology and the importance that they have on everything that happens in all these governments and all these countries, uh, I, I, is it a safe uh, is it safe to 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 state that you know diplomacy and even politics is, is going to take a shift towards this, Uh, interest of what's happening in space? Well, it certainly has. And people are playing around with treaties. I've been on programs that we routinely violated international treaties. And again, get to that, you know, the child thing of if you can get away with it, you will do it. You know, I'm old enough to know that's what, how governments work. That's how the world works. So you can have all these treaties Uh, but good luck trying to prove them. Good luck uh, inspecting a satellite and is there some hidden door on the side that something comes out? You know, I've theorized, gee, we have all these uh, 1960s and 70s rocket boosters that put satellites up uh, halfway to geosynchronous. They're just floating around there. You could hide some sort of space weapon in the exhaust cone which is the size of the room I'm in, mm-hmm. hide it there for years. Is anyone going to go inspect that and use up all the fuel and inspect those hundreds, if not thousands of them? I mean, it's very easy to hide space weapons. Um, and, you know, you can have them on the ground. You know, the late countries, they start off with this debris-causing uh, direct ascent anti-satellites where they launch it from some missile. You know, the Chinese did it too. Um, and... And then they graduate to uh, more um, sophisticated. And the end thing is is cyber uh, weapons. That's the most popular. They think they can get away with it. You know, they make them reversible or surgical and all. And to me, I, I, I do these, um, I play these games in my mind, I guess, or something. I say, well, let's see. Let's say you're um, Ukrainian in the trenches. And you hear the Russian tanks revving up to come attack you. And some egghead scientist shows up in the trench and he has this big black box with a, you know, a, a big red button in the center and say, you push that uh, button and it will cyber attack those Russian tanks. And I assure you, it will, uh, you know, kill them. They'll stop them from moving and all that. And, you know, I've tried it in the lab. Sorry, I couldn't try it on the, on the, uh, actual uh, battlefield and oh sorry again i used up all your funding uh i had no money left to buy you some bazookas you know and i tank whatever now okay goodbye and so there's the ukrainians and they see the russian tanks coming at them and they push that button and uh, the, the russian tanks go oh, and it stops and 30 seconds later reboots and comes and squishes you you know now i don't know about you but as a guy it's more emotionally satisfying to see a big flaming hole in the ground where the tank used to be. And you go, yep, check. I got it. Versus, oh, cyber, you know, and that might work if you're dealing with third world countries, you know, that aren't too cool about these things. But if you're talking about the Indo-European Western way of war, where when people are about to die, they get very smart. And so, oh, I'm going to do this cyber attack on this satellite. And uh, did it work? Did it not work? Are they faking its death? How do you know? So I think it's fun. It's sort of like World War II, where 
you would change road signs around to confuse people. Mm-hmm. And so cyber, okay, do that, you know, and do all that stuff. And it helps, but I don't think it's necessarily decisive. When you really come to that war in space versus, oh, just playing around, we're going to jam these satellites and send a message and all that. Mm-hmm. But if someone wants to really take out your satellites, they're going to have hundreds of attacks that is going to throw you off balance and you're going to scratch your head and say, who did that? Because you won't even know. You might say, oh, I'm at war with China in the West Pacific. My satellites stopped working. Again, was it a natural phenomena? Was it those damn Chinese? Or maybe it was the Russians or North Koreans trying to stir the pot. How do you know? Where are we, where are we Paul, when, uh, with respect to uh, international laws and norms um, as we're currently addressing uh, this issue of uh, space warfare? Are there any efforts to establish any rules or are there any rules? Oh, yeah, are, there any, are there going to be new ones? Um, where are we with that? I don't track them exactly. I see them now and again because I think it's a fool's errand ultimately. Uh, but uh, yeah, the United Nations, uh, there's a, I think in uh, uh, Vienna or something, there's a whole United Nations space group. And there's a lot of different people. I talk to space lawyers all the time. Uh, you know, I've been uh, complaining about uh, the, the underlying treaty was 1967 Outer Space Treaty that say, mm-hmm. you, oh, you can't own, weaponize uh, space. celestial bodies and all that. But I've been theorizing that, you know, the way China has been treating the South China Sea, um, would they, uh, 10 minutes before they land their taikonauts on the moon, say, oh, I abrogate the 1967 treaty. Uh, it's not us anymore. Uh, we're going to c- declare ownership of the moon. And these space lawyer types all make fun of that and say, oh, no, that's the standard of the world. And you have to follow it, even if you didn't sign the treaty, which doesn't make any sense to me. But anyway... But last year, uh, a former NASA, head of NASA, admitted the same thing, that, you know, maybe that's what's going to happen. Now, to me, it's like, I don't know, uh, 16th century or something like that, that, uh, you know, the the Pope declared that uh, Spain and uh, Portugal owned the whole Western Hemisphere. Well, you know, good luck defending that. (laughs) You can make certain claims and all that. And the moon is just a big mystery to me. You know, I've been in this business very deeply. And I remember like in the 70s, NASA going up to uh, the Air Force and say, hey, uh, do you want a base on the moon? We can build you a base on the moon. And and the Air Force scratching their heads and says, well, Gene, it's awfully far away. I, I'm not really sure. I guess not. But now everyone's really interested in the moon. I mean, there's even commercial companies putting up satellites for cell phone service on the moon. What are you talking about? You know, there's, <laughs> you know, $10,000 a minute for two, you know, astronauts on the, it doesn't make any sense. And the Air Force Research Lab, oh, we're going to put this space surveillance satellites on the dark side of the moon to see what's happening. Well, what is happening? I don't really get it, but they're all very worried about it. Uh, so that's the next in thing, I guess. And then, you know, you look at treaties, but, you know that again, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, and I'm no lawyer, but there's 80 plus countries around the world that never signed it. Now you take Elon Musk at one point was going to be using uh, the floating oil platforms to launch his uh, rockets. His rockets. He yeah. gave up on it for some reason. But you took you take one of those uh, floating platforms and put them inside the uh, economic zone. Uh, of some one of those countries never signed the treaty and launched to the moon and, you know, step on the moon. And, and then the country declares ownership of it and leases it back for 99 years to that company, you know, like um, Hong Kong or something. I don't know. It just seems uh, doable. So, okay, I'm sorry. I, I'm not into the treaty. It's great. Uh, but you just can hide things too much. And the first thing that gets thrown out in a real war are the treaties. Right. So how do you, when you're, when you're consulting with, um, with governments, how do you, you know, what do you tell them? How do you advise them on how to get prepared for, uh, for space wars or how to prevent any, uh, anything happening from space war? Well, uh, like traditional terrestrial wars, situational awareness is everything. I mean, on the ground, 
there's been all kinds of wars caused because you didn't understand the adversary. And even more difficult to understand the adversary is his intent. In other words, his the human mind. What is he thinking? Maybe he doesn't even know what he's going to do the next day. So that's even more difficult in space. So it's called SSC, uh, no, SSA, space situational awareness. And now the latest term, they change it to space domain awareness. And uh, very difficult in space. You, know, you can hide things very easily. Uh, but it's like, uh, okay, who owns what assets and what is that asset capable of? And can that threaten my abilities to use space to um, support troops on the battlefield? Because really, uh, space isn't, there's no colonies in space. Satellites aren't there. The Space Force isn't there to protect people in space. Its only purpose in life is to support the warfighter on the ground. So you have to think of those, you know, bigger pictures like that. Um, so when when you're planning, and again, it, 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 there's there's so many question marks, right? I mean, you 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 you're referring to all these instances where well, we don't know, well, we don't know what happened, we don't know what's being discussed behind closed doors. How do you how do you win? How do you uh, how do you put yourself in a situation where you can win uh, these conflicts that are happening up in space? There's um, what I call a genius kind of jo uh, document. You can look it up in the internet. It's a uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff's publication, JP five dash zero. Uh, so it's the uh, war termination criteria before you do any deployment of forces. And so if you're talking about terrestrial war, that's kind of traditionally understandable. Oh, why are we here? Well, we want to conquer the adversary territory and take over their capital and depose the government and, you know, uh, destroy his war making cable. I mean, you could list all those and say, okay, we need forces to do this, this, and that. And this is the timing and all that. Well, there's no capital in space. There's no territory, sort of, you know, geosynchronous orbits, but legally you can't do that. So, what are the surrender criteria for space? Now, I've developed about 50 of them and all that uh but how do you plan and then how do you define who won and both sides can say they won. you know they could say oh i took out all your imagery satellites no i took out all your communication satellites well what's matters more well it you know information warfare impact an adversary commander's mind who really knows and then you can get even more subtle about it uh and that is um well, if you're fighting dictatorships, generally uh, the troops aren't allowed to take initiative. They do, they'll get shot. Mm -hmm. And so if you're fighting, let's say, in the Western Pacific, maybe you should go against uh, command and control satellites, uh, communication satellites. So adversary commanders can't communicate to their troops. And so we're more effective on the battlefield. But if you're talking about Indo-European wars in the, you know, in Europe, where I remember the Germans of World War II complaining about the Americans never even followed their doctrine, their manuals and stuff like that. And, you know, in Desert Storm and all that, if Americans are cut off from command and control, they just take the initiative on and go do their own thing. So maybe you should pre-position weapons in Europe that are against, let's say, imagery satellites. So you know, you have to think informationally, not necessarily, oh, this satellite looks really cool and I really want to use this new weapon system and it's going to really make me feel good and make me look good in front of my wife that, tonight. Hmm. <laughs> and that's why I'm going to use it. Uh, yeah. Because they don't really think these things through of the consequences. As we wrap up, Paul, tell me a little bit from your point of view, what is the biggest uh, threat uh, in the future uh, in this field? Bops, fractional orbital bombardment system, my biggest fear. I did the original studies in the 1980s about space to earth weapons. We're very effective uh, with Warsaw Pact uh, Army against them. You know, we got briefed up to the National Security Council. Uh, FROBS is a system the Russians invented in the 1960s, where instead of shooting uh, nuclear missiles, over uh, uh, the Arctic, they go over Antarctic from the south and avoid the uh, American uh, defense uh, defenses and radars and stuff like that. And 
they said, well, this doesn't violate weapons of mass destruction in space, 1967 treaty, because it's only partial orbit. So, okay. Now, uh, the Chinese, it was again in the, the press two years ago, the Chinese have the exact same FOB system. Now, look at what we're really talking about is hypervelocity weapons. Look at the NATO-Ukrainian command center that was 400 feet underground, 440-story uh, uh, building, that was taken out by a Russian uh, Kinzel or something, hypervelocity missile. You can see it. Uh, there's a video of the, the night sky lighting up like it's daytime. You could see the missile coming down and taking it out. And it went 400 feet underground. And it's not well known, but you, you can find uh, information on that. So let's say China says, we're going to be good guys. And we're going to uh, collect space junk and, and dead satellites and put them in a solar furnace, point it at the sun, melt them, and drop them as slag in the South Pacific Ocean. Now, these reentry vehicles from ICBMs, they come in at really hypersonic, like Mach 26. They're three times hotter than the surface of the sun. They're maneuverable. So if China, and it's a scientific fact, I think it's a pound of lead moving at 12,000 feet per second or something is equivalent to a pound of TNT. And so a lot of these hypersonic missiles don't even have explosives. So if you had, let's say, two tons of concrete that you deorbited, and one night in a 40-minute time frame, as all it takes to deorbit, you took out every single American aircraft carrier hmm. around the world. You know, there's two tons of concrete or whatever melted satellites. There's no defense against it. The kinetic energy of deorbiting versus any kinetic energy you can do going up against gravity, you're never going to be able to defend against it. You're going to have a hundred foot hole with the edges of the uh, metal gleaming from this three times hotter in the sun. It's going to hit the cold ocean, make a huge explosion. All American aircraft carriers are gone in 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. I'm theorizing this, but it, we're talking 1960s technology. It could happen tonight. I'm writing a novel on it, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you go to Mayhan and control the sea. I don't know if you do all of that doctrine thing. And the United States is uh, is not a land power. It's a sea power. We've had uh, these oceans as barriers, and so we can arrogantly go around and fight wars all around the world because they never come back to us. But suddenly, if you do not no longer have a Navy... Um, it's a prison. The oceans are a prison. America is no longer a superpower. Uh, you know, good luck marching half a million men across the ocean to protect Europe. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we're like 500 years ago where, you know, only land powers matter. Yeah. So who were the land powers? China and India. That's who would matter in this thing. And, you know, China could say, oh, we've got these fob systems. We're going to control the all the oceans um you know uh, all that oil in the middle east uh good luck it's worthless if you can't ship it out and china can charge transit fees anti-piracy fees let's say or something and if someone doesn't pay the fees they declare them a pirate and sink them so china controls the world you know through space mm -hmm. if you haven't really figured out that space warfare space defense things like that and the only country that can solve that is India. 1.4 billion people. Uh, usually one out of 10 people can become a, a soldier. 140 million people. Well, okay, uh, you know, let's say one out of 100. A 14 million man army can do anything. So that's, I'm theorizing, but it's all technically possible. And today. Are we, um, are there any steps being taken from the international community to prevent this sort of escalation uh, with respect to space warfare? Well, I, I mentioned earlier the laws thing, but the FOBs thing, and no one's talking about it. I'm the only one I know mm -hmm. about it. Uh, people, you know, uh, I think are overly exercised with the uh, the debris problem. Yes, that, that's an issue, and let's not 
great debris, but there's so many other ways to take out satellites. And there's so much mystery. I mean, you go to the U.S. Space Force satellite catalog of all objects up there, close to 40% of them are called analyst objects, meaning we don't know who owns them and what they are. So, yeah, there's this huge mystery in space. And I'm not sure what you do about it, you know. Put up more satellites to surveil things, hope for the best. I mean, the United States is the only one that has a worldwide space surveillance network, though there's uh, various uh, commercial companies who have things they put up, like in Australia, you know, usually optical. Though I've been on programs uh, called Smart Attitude, where, you know, if you have a satellite, it's a box, and the sun bounces off a side of it and goes to the earth will just turn your box to a different attitude. So it bounces off into space and suddenly your 18th magnitude without even painting yourself black, mm. you know, so there's so many ways to hide in there. How do you prevent this? Uh, gee, you got me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I guess it's something that so how, how do you prevent a nuclear explosion on earth? How, how do you know someone doesn't have it in a truck somewhere yeah. in a tunnel somewhere, you know, you hope for the best, you try for the best in space you know, four pi r. Uh, you're talking about, like, let's say a satellite of our size of a basketball. Okay, go dribble a basketball and hide it somewhere on Earth and tell someone to find it. Right. Now make that a trillion times worse between the Earth and the Moon. Uh, so, what do you do about that? Oh, that's a tough one. Definitely, well, definitely interesting times that we're living in, uh, yeah, Paul. Before we go. Space. Before we go, just want to mention your new book, The Battle Beyond Fighting and Winning the Coming War in Space. Uh, tell everyone where they can go get it. Uh, well, uh, there's actually two books. That's uh, the second one. Uh, that's a, a summarization of all my knowledge over the last 50 years of how to fight and win space wars. Everyone else has books on theoretical doc uh, policy and this and that. This is from an actual space warfighter. And... Um, it's uh, on pre-order now and uh, Amazon, uh, uh, Walmart, and uh, Barnes and & Noble. And it's uh, officially coming out in print uh, January uh, 9th. There you go. So it's, a, it's a limited print run. So, you know, get your copy soon. Thank you so much, Paul, uh, for, doing this, uh, for doing this episode. I really appreciate your time. Okay. I appreciate uh, you having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for following us, and we'll see you all in the next episode of the Strategy International Podcast. Take good care. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International Podcast, produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.